Well, good morning. We're going to receive communion this morning. I want to welcome those that are joining us, not only live, but online here on stream. And uh, if you have some little cracker or a little bit of juice, we're going to do communion together here this morning. Now, I just started a new series in our church on the book of Jeremiah. This is an Old Testament prophet, and a couple of weeks ago, I talked about understanding the nature of covenant. How many remember that? Some of you are probably with me. And this is what we're doing. We're actually, today, as we break of this bread, we're renewing our covenant. That's what we do every time we do communion. And so Jesus uh, talked about he was the fulfillment of the first covenant. And this is actually a completion of it, and it's being fulfilled in the work and person of Jesus Christ. Paul the Apostle writes to the Corinthians, he said, I received from the Lord, but I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And this is what brings us deliverance from sin and ultimately death itself, where we'll be experiencing eternal life with God forever. And that's because of what Jesus did. Father, I just want to thank you for your broken body, which is represented by this little bread, this emblem, Lord. And as we break bread together, Father, we're renewing our covenant with you. We thank you that we have this amazing, amazing relationship with you. And we just pray right now that all of the benefits that you have brought by dying on a cross and rising again from the dead, all of those benefits, Lord, May we receive them right now, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's eat together. It says, in the same way after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So in that last little phrase, we learn something. We're proclaiming Christ's death until he comes. The assumption now is Jesus not only died, he rose again and is coming back again. And so we're declaring the death and resurrection and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our relationship. We have an amazing hope to look forward to. And when you look at this broken world, how many say, even so, Lord Jesus, come. Come into our broken world and heal it. And he's the answer. So, Lord, I thank you for this cup. This represents your shed blood that was given as a sacrifice for our sin and for our salvation. I thank you, Lord, that we're going to receive now all the benefits that your salvation brings to us. I pray that we would receive healing and forgiveness and understanding and grace and empowering grace to live each day for you. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's drink together. If we can just take these little cups, and if you wouldn't mind when you leave this morning, just to drop them off at the dispensary back at the way out of the building. We're going to turn in our Bibles this morning to the book of Jeremiah chapter 3. Jeremiah chapter 3. One of probably the most important aspects to life is relationships. I've entitled the sermon, Can We Ever Be a Family Again? How many think that in relationships, they are extremely rewarding, but many times difficult? And we see that the most wonderful and yet the most challenging aspect of life is in relationships. And we become deeply invested. But when there's a breach in that relationship, when there's a severance, when there's a brokenness, particularly in our marriage relationship, the question that comes to mind, is it possible to hit a reset button? Is it possible to do a do-over, to start again afresh? And I believe that we're going to look at the scriptures this morning. We're going to see uh, the means of really being reconciled, first of all, to the ultimate person. That's God himself. And then in our marriages, and then beyond that to people that maybe we've had a broken relationship. We're going to look at, you know, what are some of the ways that that can begin to happen? I think there are terms we need to consider, and so I raise it as a question. Are there terms we need to consider before moving forward? And what are the ingredients that make reconciliation or restoration or renewal or healing in that relationship that's been broken? And as we look at the nation today of the 
northern ten tribes, Israel by name, and the southern two tribes, Judah by name, we're going to learn a lot about relationships, how they come to an end, and how they can be reconciled. And I don't know about you, but it's easy to see how relationships come to an end. I I think we're living in a society today where we see a lot of broken relationships. And we see a lot of people just walking away from other people, and they just don't seem to have any, they're indifferent to it. And yet, how many know that probably the greatest need we have in our life is to have a healthy relationship with one another? That's really, really important. And, you know, God designed us in such a way that we need to socialize, that we are designed not to live in isolation, not to live alone. So we're going to see in this situation that Israel's sins actually led to a broken covenant with God. And just like in a marriage, apart from certain powerful changes, the relationship dissolves. It comes to an end. And I think it's fascinating that both in the Old Testament We see this analogy being used between the people of God, Israel and Judah, the covenant people of God, who are likened unto a bride to God. God's the groom, the people of God are the bride. And we see that as well in the New Testament when you and I are called the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ and Christ is the groom. And so we see this beautiful analogy of marriage to depict the exclusivity and the intimacy of our relationship with Almighty God. So it's actually shocking to discover that in Jeremiah chapter 3, God divorces the nation of Israel. Probably one of the most shocking verses in the Old Testament. We're going to look at that. And then he warns Judah, the southern two tribes, of a very similar fate if they don't uh, pay attention to what's happened in the relationship of the northern ten tribes. And so the goal in any relationship that has experienced difficulties is reconciliation. And I think that the question often arises uh, in our brokenness and in our pain, is it possible? What are the terms that a relationship can be repaired? How many think that's kind of important? And we have a a, a restoration of relationship. And so uh, I think Jeremiah here raises in the third chapter and a little bit in the fourth chapter what it's going to take. And so I want to look at uh, three relational dynamics in the context of reconciliation or restoration or how to come back into a oneness relationship. And first of all, there's a possibility of it. And I want to declare to you this morning that it's possible, that relationships can be mended. Isn't that good news? That there can be restoration. And we're going to look at that. So we have to always start with what destroys them in the first place. Because I think when we understand that, then we can talk about how to fix them. And what happens is, usually in relationships, we neglect them. That's the biggest problem. And how we neglect a relationship and how we don't make it the primary focus is that we get caught up with other things in our lives, other loves. We begin to focus in on these things to the neglect of our primary relationship. I mean, we do that with God. We just get so busy. We get to doing all kinds of other things. And we don't realize that we're neglecting God. And we're actually putting these other things ahead of God in our lives. And then the relationship we have with God begins to suffer. And that happens in marriages. I see it all the time. People neglect their spouse. They get caught up in other pursuits, other interests, other things, and pretty soon their relationship begins to suffer. And we see that in other friendships. We go down the list. It always works out that way. And probably the greatest threat in a a marriage relationship is when it's uh, when when there's another lover involved, or there's other loves involved, and there's a the breaking down of that relationship. And so in Jeremiah, we go back here to the book of Deuteronomy. We're going to talk about how uh, Jeremiah is going to use this analogy of marriage as a foundation in which we have an understanding of our own relationship with God. And so, what happens when we violate that covenant? Jeremiah starts in chapter 3, verse 1. If a man divorces his wife and she leaves him and marries another man, should should he return to her again? And would not the land be completely defiled? Now, I don't think we fully understand this unless we understand where Jeremiah is coming from. He's actually going back into the covenant that God made with Israel. And in Deuteronomy chapter 24, we find this picture that God is explaining in relationship to marriage. And he says this in Deuteronomy, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, 
And he writes her a certificate of divorce and gives it to her and sends her from his house. And after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man. So now there's, you know, how many begin to see the permanency of this? That the relationship is dissolved. There's a new relationship that's been gotten. That's what he's talking about. He goes on, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce and gives it to her and sends her from his house. Or another scenario, he just happens to die. Here's the question. Then her first husband who divorces her is not allowed to marry her again after she's been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So why do you think this law was put into place? I think what God is trying to teach us is, first of all, the uniqueness of the relationship, and also that you and I don't make frivolous decisions regarding the ending of a relationship. This is serious stuff. Because once you and I make this decision, you can't go back. It's, an, it's, a, it's a, a very difficult thing to have this happen. And, and so I believe that law is teaching us that. And so Jesus warns us of this when he's being asked the question, you know, hundreds of years later, the Jewish people are divided over the issue of divorce. And there's two schools of thought. And the one school of thought is that you can divorce your wife for any reason. And then the other school of thought is, no, that's not true. This is a very serious thing. And there has to be only a very unique reason for that to happen. Because that, the term, uh, she displeases him. What does that really mean? So now the disciples, or sorry, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they raise that question to see what's his take on this subject. And Jesus answers the question, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. In other words, what happens in a, in a broken relationship is that we get wounded and we get hurt, and then we begin to protect ourselves, and pretty soon we become indifferent to the other person. And Jesus says that's the reason why marriages fall apart, because eventually there's a, a disconnect emotionally with that person. We just shut ourselves off from that person. There's a, we become indifferent to them. But Jesus said, but it's not this way from the very beginning. I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So Jesus lays a groundwork in which brings about the end of a marital relationship. And that's the idea that people have gone after other loves. There's something else in that person's life. They've been unfaithful to their spouse. Now, having picked up all of this background, we now come back to what Jeremiah is going to say to the people of God. He's going to basically say, you've been unfaithful to God. Starts out here, but you have lived as a prostitute with many lovers. Would you now return to me, declares the Lord? See, that's an allusion back to Deuteronomy. Look up to the barren heights and see, is there any place where you have not been ravished? In other words, you guys have been cheating on me all along. By the roadside, you sat waiting for lovers, sat like a nomad in the desert. You've defiled the land with your prostitution and your wickedness. Now, this idea of barren heights is really, uh, could be translated caravan routes. And it's the place where traders traveled. And it's, it's the place where people set up shop. And many prostitutes would set up shop and do business here. And so what God was saying to Israel, this is what you've been behaving like. But what they were doing was, it wasn't like this is a physical activity, it, physical in the sense it was sexual. You're using this sexual infidelity to describe unfaithfulness to God when we worship something other than God. Worshiping idols. The Bible considers that infidelity or unfaithfulness. And so he's describing this. And many of these roads were located on ridge routes in Israel. And, and this is probably an allusion, actually, to the Canaanite religious sites that were located in high places. You know, it's fascinating. God sent Israel in to purge the land of all of the defilement of all the idolatry in the land. What does Israel do? Comes into the land and adopts the practices of the idolatry in the land and actually does it even more so that God finally exiles them out of the land just like he got rid of the Canaanites in the land. That's interesting. What does that teach us? 
that as believers, we have to be careful that we're not embracing what the society's doing around us, that we don't play fast and loose and just say, hey, it's no big deal to God. God goes, no, I'm jealous. I want this exclusive relationship where you and I are totally devoted to God, and we're not embracing the values of this culture, that we're not embracing those things. Uh, Dr. Longman says it this way, this was certainly a convenient place for prostitutes seeking clients on these barren heights. So Jeremiah is pointing out that their idolatry was spiritual prostitution. They were unfaithful to Yahweh. The question raised by Jeremiah 3.1 is, is it, was it impossible under the law to be reconciled? But what we're going to discover here this morning is that God is gracious. And under grace, God can restore fallen people. So even though the law makes it difficult or impossible, grace triumphs over law. We're going to find out how God does it. Because what he does, i give you a clue, is he takes the penalty on himself. That's how he does it. So let's take a look what happens when, uh, when we're unfaithful to God. Jeremiah says, Therefore the showers have been withheld, and no spring rains have fallen. How many recognize that when we're unfaithful to God, there's consequences? Anybody know that? The wages of sin has always produced consequences. We all experience it. And here we read of this consequence. What's he, what's he talking about here? Well, one of the curses under the Old Testament covenant was if you're unfaithful to God, God would withhold the rain. And what happens is then the land doesn't produce its food and people are in a famine situation and it's designed to wake us up. Now, I don't know if you've read through the covenant curses in the Old Testament, but there's a whole list of things that happen. We get famine, we can get uh, blight, you can get you know, uh, predatorial animals, you can get invading armies, you can get pest, uh, what, what are we dealing with now? COVID, what's this? It's a, it's a pandemic, right? A, a disease. Well, God can allow that to happen too. And he did on the Israelites when they weren't paying attention. God says, I'll get your attention. But ultimately, if they continue to reject God, God says, fine, I will divorce you. And we're going to read about that in a moment here. In Deuteronomy, we said, the sky over your head will be bronze, the ground beneath you iron. Uh, the Lord will turn the rain of your country into dust and powder. It will come down from the skies until you are destroyed. So he's basically warning uh, from the book of the covenant, this is what will happen when you turn your back on me and you're unfaithful to me. Uh, and now, God's not fooled by our verbal pretense. You know, a lot of times when we do the wrong thing, we, we come back and we say, oh, I'm sorry. But how many know in a relationship when people keep saying to you, they keep doing the wrong thing and they just keep coming back and saying, I'm sorry, but they don't change. After a while, you, you lose credibility. And pretty soon the person doesn't believe you anymore. How many know that's true? Listen to what God says to the Israelites. Yet you have the brazen look of a prostitute. You refuse to blush with shame. Have you not just called to me my father, my friend from my youth? Uh, will you always be angry? Will your wrath continue forever? This is how you talk, but you do all the evil you can. Wow, that's pretty strong. What's he saying to them? He's saying, look, you're appealing to me and saying you're sorry, but you're really not sorry. It's, it's just in word only. It's a pretense. You know, if, if you really want, if you're really sorry, something has to happen. There's got to be a genuine change of heart and attitude that leads to a change of behavior. That's when you know people are really becoming, you know, like they're really recognizing they're doing the wrong thing. And they really are concerned about the repair and restoration of a relationship. And I believe that's true with God. It's true with our spouses. It's true with people in general. Uh, as a matter of fact, Jeremiah said, yeah, you guys say all the right things, but your actions are totally wrong. And that's why I know that you're just, it's all in pretense. I find it fascinating that one of Jeremiah's contemporaries, another prophet that lived in Jeremiah's time was a man by the name of Isaiah. And Jesus himself in his generation, this is what he said to the people of God in that generation. He said, you know what? You're hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. 
By the way, does this, could this happen in the 21st century that you and I could be singing praises to God, but in reality, we're elsewhere? And actually, we're living our own life. We're living for our own selfish interests, and we're saying, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm doing my own thing. Do you think that kind of duplicity lives today? Well, I think it does. So we have to evaluate what we're hearing here this morning and saying, hey, maybe God is trying to say something to me. God says, no, I'm hearing what you're saying, but I'm seeing what you're doing. And what you're doing and what you're saying are two different things. You're literally a little double-minded. He says, they worship me in vain, and their teachings are merely human rules. You know, a lot of times we can twist the Bible to make it say what we want it to say and not what God wants us to hear. And when that happens, we don't really develop and grow. And I'm going to challenge us today. I believe that God is wanting to deal with something very significant in our lives. And we're, as we're going to see, I, one of the terms of real transformation is a word called repentance and how necessary that is in all of our lives. Robert Davidson says, true reconciliation, as we well know in human relationships, is a difficult, costly experience, which can never be built on a quick, let's forget it, attitude. You know, if when we brush you know, things off as if it's no big thing, we're, we're, that's not how you're going to build a re- reconciled relationship. You've got to have something more going on there. He says, a faithless, unrepentant people cannot simply turn to God as if he were some benign sugar daddy, momentarily angry, but at heart a soft, indulgent friend, prepared to give them anything they ask as soon as they say please. No, he says, reconciliation can never be merely a matter of words. That's very powerful. So lesson number one we should put in our minds, if I want to have a restored relationship, if I want to be reconciled to someone, it's more than just saying a few words. It's actually something far more significant and far deeper than that. You should have that in your mind because we're going to keep moving down. I'm going to show you how critical this is. Uh, He goes on. You know, how many know some people... Uh, really never really, uh, first of all, there needs to be, I'm saying there needs to be a change of heart and action that reveals a new basis on which the relationship can be established on. You have to change from the inside out. That's what I'm getting at. You have to literally realize I'm wrong, and if I want this relationship to work, I've got to change the way I'm operating. Okay, that's repentance. That's a change of mind and action that leads to reconciliation. But you know, some people never learn. How many know that? And they don't change. Uh, Jeremiah indicates that the southern kingdom of Judah was not learning the lessons from their northern neighbors. Now, these are, they, this was one nation at one time, but it divided under, just after Solomon. Remember, under his son Jeroboam, Rehoboam, those two, Rehoboam took over, and then Jeroboam split the nation into two, northern, southern. And now the northern group had been taken into exile. They had been playing fast and loose with God. They never had a godly king. They, they, they worshiped false idols the whole way through. God said, I've had enough of you guys. And then he does something very powerful here. It says, in verse 6, it says, During the reign of King Josiah, this is a southern king, godly king, good king, the Lord said to me, Have you seen what faithless Israel, the northern kingdom, has done. She's gone up on every high hill and under every spreading tree and has committed adultery there. I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce. I don't know. This is such a profound verse. Verse 8. Think about it. God says, I'm divorcing my people. I'm cutting you off. I'm exiling you. How many that does that is that a shocking statement? I think it's extremely terrifying statement to think that God could write us a bill of divorce and say, I'm cutting you guys off. You know, see, we, we, we labor on certain texts in the New Testament. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I think that's true. God doesn't. The only problem is sometimes we turn our back on God and we leave God. And there's the problem. Eventually, we're actually worshiping false gods and God goes, you've made your choice. And we're making a choice, and it's the wrong choice. And eventually, when God repeatedly warns us and we, you know, don't listen, we end up exiled from the presence of God. We end up there. He says here, yet I saw that her unfaithful sister Judah had no fear. He said, I sent her away because she was adulterous. She was unfaithful. Isn't it interesting that Jesus, who's God in the flesh, said to the Pharisees, the only ground for divorce is unfaithfulness. Why could he say that? Because he said, in his mind, he goes, I divorced Israel. 
because she was unfaithful. That's the only good ground, the only justifiable ground for the ending of her relationship. And then he says this, I saw her unfaithful sister Judah had no fear. She also went out and committed adultery. And I thought that after she had done all of this, she would return to me, but she did not. And her unfaithful sister Judah saw it. Uh, Because Israel's immorality mattered so little to her, she defiled the land and committed adultery with stone and wood. Those are all the ingredients in idolatrous worship. In spite of all this, her unfaithful sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but only in pretense, declares the Lord. And the Lord said to me, faithless Israel is more righteous than unfaithful Judah. Now, why is he making this distinction between Israel and Judah? Why does he say that the northern kingdom who was unfaithful to God is actually more righteous than Judah? Now, I'm going to give you the answer. The answer is Israel did not have a model to copy. Judah was witnessing what was going on, and rather than learn from that experience, she follows in its track and does the very same thing. What that says to me is when you and I know better and we sin anyways, it's far more devastating than when we sin in ignorance. Now, I I think every day, you know, we probably do things that we're not even aware of that might be sinful. There's things that we may be thinking or saying or doing that may, you know, we don't think about it. And maybe we're just unaware that that's not a right thing to do. But, you know, when you and I know what's wrong and we do it anyways, that's sinning against knowledge. That's sinning against light. That's a very devastating thing to do. And so that's why God said this about Judah. She was far more uh, unrighteous in her actions. Robert Davidson says there's nothing more frustrating than trying to preach repentance to a people who believe they've already repented. Uh, I want you to think about that statement for a minute. You see, one of the problems I think as Christians is we think, well, I'm a Christian, no problem. And what God is trying to tell us is simply this. There are things in all of our lives God wants to deal with. And I believe repentance, not as, see, a lot of times we think of repentance as a negative thing. I want to challenge you today and tell you that repentance should be a way of life for every believer. That you and I should have a tender heart and we should be open to God's continuous dealings and corrections in our lives. And we should be making, uh, a coming into an agreement with God and changing our ways. But you know, a lot of times what we do is we get a little bullheaded and stubborn and we, we just kind of cross our arms and we just do our own thing. And we really don't care what God has to say. And what we don't realize is what we're doing is turning our back on God. And we're hardening our heart. And then when God tries to speak to us, we don't listen to him. We're not hearing what he's saying. We're digging our heels in. And God wants to speak into our lives. That we're living this this attitude of a tenderness before God in our hearts. And we're open to God's instruction and continuous correction in our lives. He goes on to say there's nothing like a good dose of religion to inoculate people against the radical claims of God. See, I I think what God's calling us to is far more radical than most of us understand. You know, I was talking to someone after the first service. I said, if you meditate on this one text of scripture, it'll totally change your life. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. You know, most of us are living as if this life is everything and the next life is nothing. When in reality, being with Christ is the most ultimate thing we could actually ever long for. And for me to live as Christ suggests to me that the essence of my life is about serving Jesus. That's where my heart needs to be. And until I get there, I'm just playing a game. And I think a lot of times as Christians, we get seduced into just going through the motions. We come to church, we worship God, we live our own lives, we do our own thing. Folks, we're just fooling ourselves. And this is what we're talking about here. Now let me just um, move on here and say this, that unless there's real repentance in our lives, our face is not turned towards God. You know, God... God wants to bless us, yes, but you've got to be looking at him. When, when the Bible says, I will cause my face to shine on you, you have to be looking at him. But sometimes people turn their back to God, and God's favor can't be on us. And it's not because God doesn't want to show favor. It's because we've turned our back on God. The second area of, of uh, relational dynamics 
in this context of reconciliation is the call for it. God is calling us to be reconciled. God is calling us to himself. And how are we going to respond to that change of what real repentance is? And I believe that this is a call that God's giving not only so that you and I can have a healthy relationship with him, but listen, it'll make differences in our marriages and in our relationships with people. God says to love God. We're to love God with what? All of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. See, love is the ruling factor in these things. And if we're not loving uh, God, we can't even love ourselves. And if we don't love ourselves, we're not going to love other people. See, it, it gets right down to some very core issues in our lives. Here's what Jeremiah writes. He says, go proclaim this message towards the north. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will frown on you no longer, for I am faithful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Remember I said law says one thing, grace says something else. Uh, Only acknowledge your guilt. So what is Jesus comes on the scene and what's he preaching? He's preaching repentance. God is always going to be preaching repentance. God is always going to be calling us to himself. He's going to be calling us to acknowledge what's wrong in our lives. He says, you've rebelled against the Lord your God. You've scattered your favors to foreign gods under every spreading tree and have not obeyed me, declares the Lord. Return, faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. I will choose you, one from a town and two from a clan, and bring you to Zion. Here Jeremiah uh, is um, basically calling the people to return back to him. R.K. Harrison says, even though from the above analogy, the nation could not take her place again as God's wife because of her repeated adulteries, she could still be forgiven if she was truly penitent for past sins. But I want to just say this, what was happening. The northern, when the northern kingdom was taken into exile, the poorest people were left in the land. The southern kingdom actually approached them to come back and worship in Jerusalem under King Hezekiah, and we see it under Josiah. But here's what I'm going to say. Some people listened, but many of them didn't. Some of them came back. And that's what he's talking about here. Some are willing to come back. But then God says something even more powerful in this chapter. God's going to make a promise. One day, I'm going to bring you all back. And I believe that the, reason, the way God goes about doing it, you know, we think of it just strictly in a physical way. But I'm going to say it to you this way. One of the greatest chapters in the book of Jeremiah is found in chapter 31. And in chapter 31, he says this, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. He goes on, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors back on Mount Sinai when I delivered them out of Egypt. He says, when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. In other words, God says, I was faithful, but you guys were not. You were unfaithful to me. The covenant came to an end. But I'm going to make a new covenant. Listen to what it says in the next verse. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it in their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. You know what God says? I'm not going to just let you think about the stone tablets or the the law written on a scroll. What I'm going to do is actually put the law in God inside of your very heart. And how does God do that? In the new covenant, God himself comes and lives within us. And as you and I experience the presence of the living God, this gives us the power to actually do the word of God. See, in the Old Testament, people knew what was right, but they were unable to do it. They just kept failing. But now in the new covenant, God gives us the spirit of God living inside of us so that we can actually do what he's telling us to do. Now, it's interesting here that In the new covenant, do you realize there is no longer Jew and Gentile? We become one people. I love that. There's a barrier that's broken. We become God's people. And Robert Davidson says, relating to this issue of reconciliation, this is really the term and the grounds upon which reconciliation happens. He says, the call to turn, the Hebrew word shove, was an important element in Jeremiah's early preaching. He says, It throbs like an incessant motif throughout the passages. The forms of this word occur no less than 18 times. A fact concealed by English translations. Like the the chapter we're looking at right now, 18 times this word turn is there. 
It has several meanings, all derived from that basic idea of turning. You can turn, how many know, in different directions. You don't have to turn in, you know, in the right direction. You can turn away from someone and turn your back on them. And I, I look at today, and I see a lot of people turning away from people. I see people turning their backs on people. You know, I, I think we just, we blow the stuff off. We don't think anything of it. We're just going to, you know, turn our backs. Can I just say, we have to be very careful with what we're doing. Because you see, the way we treat people, God interprets it as the way we treat him. So we better be really careful who we're turning our backs on. Deserting them. So as a noun from the verb shove is used to describe Israel as the faithless one. That word, you see, he's interpreting it as you're faithless really means you've turned your back on me. That's what it means to be faithless. Uh, you can turn back or turn towards someone. So the word is used in the sense of returning and doing that which is right. See, when you and I do the right thing, we're actually turning to God. When you and I, you know, move in the right direction, we're moving towards God. It's, it's real simple. If you look at it this way, here's God, and he's saying, come to me, and you and I are, have our backs to him. And, you know, when we turn to God, now we're looking to him. This is the nature of repentance. It's a turning to God. And it's, it's not just, you know, well, I'm hearing what he's saying and I, I keep walking away. No, I'm changing the course of my life. I'm changing the direction of my life. See, the Bible talks about Jesus says, come and what? Follow me. See, that's a whole change of direction. I, I think we've minimized an understanding of what true repentance is. We, we don't understand it. We think, well, I've just said a little prayer. I'm a Christian. No, it's not like that. I think sometimes we don't convey it strong enough, but really it's a call to follow Jesus. It's a call to turn to him with all of our hearts. Uh, when we come to God on his terms, I love this, new things begin to happen. Isn't that neat? If you and I will turn to God, all of a sudden his face will shine on us. His favor comes into our lives. He begins to address the issues in our soul that has been destroying our relationships with our spouse, with our family, with other people. And there's a hope for a new and a healthier relationship. So I think it's important we understand turning is a good thing. Repenting is a good thing. A renewing our, our connection with God is an amazingly important and great thing. It changes how we're going to relate to people. And you know, when we have you know, broken relationships, maybe we gotta reevaluate what's going on inside of ourselves. Uh, Jeremiah, he goes on, this is what starts happening. Here's some of the things that happens, the dynamic changes. One, I'll give you shepherds after my own heart who will lead you with knowledge and understanding. In those days when your numbers have increased greatly in the land, declares the Lord, people will no longer say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It will never enter their minds or be remembered. It will not be missed, nor will another one be made. I always love these people going, I wonder where the ark of the covenant is. Folks, that's passe. It's a material thing. It means zero. We'll see in a minute what it, what's going on here. At that time, they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all nations will gather in Jerusalem to honor the name of the Lord. No longer will they follow the stubbornness of their evil hearts. In those days, the people of Judah will join the people of Israel. Together they will come from a northern land to the land I gave your ancestors as an inheritance. Let me just give you the four transforming things that happens when we turn to God. Number one, Godly leaders to help us be guided. And when I think of godly leaders, I'm thinking of the ministry of Jesus. Listen to what Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. In other words, now we have leaders. The leader, when Jesus is leading, he's got a totally interest in us and for our well-being. And when we have leaders have the heart after Christ, that's the kind of leadership God will give us. It says there will be no need for material representations depicting the presence of God. Remember the Ark of the Covenant? Remember, I'll give you a story. Israelites are coming into the promised land. They come up to the Jordan River. What does Joshua tell the priest to do? He says, put the Ark. They're carrying the Ark. He says, priests, go and step into the river. Who's, what are they carrying? The Ark of God. What happens when God's presence invades the Jordan River? The river opens up. How many go, when God's presence comes, transformation happens? You know, but listen to me now. In the New Testament, where is the presence of God? 
It's in us. And so when you and I are walking with God, God's God's spirit comes inside of us. God's presence comes inside of us. And all of a sudden, some transforming things begin to happen in us. Our hearts get changed and things around us start changing. It's very powerful. Number three, a place will be provided where God can be encountered and learned about. Now, you know, Jerusalem was the place where God said, I will let my presence dwell there. But today, the presence of God is not in a location. The presence of God is within a people. The presence of God is inside of us. And then there's a time when the kingdom will be united. Wow, that's powerful. Now just think about this unification. It's a united people. They all speak to the issue of hope at a specific moment in God's people's lives. It's all fulfilled in a person called Jesus He's God in the flesh, the word of God. And when Jesus comes, healing and reconciliation are in his wings. He's the one that brings it. Uh, David, uh, Robert Davidson says, but just as the Ark of the Covenant was no longer needed, so there would come a time when it was realized that the earthly city of Jerusalem was no longer essential to faith. And how many know that that's true? That Jesus was talking to a woman in the region of Samaria, those despised Samaritans, right? And she's telling Jesus the statement. She goes, you know, our ancestors worshiped on this, this mountain here, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And then Jesus says this, woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. He says, rather, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is a spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. How many say this is powerful stuff? What's what's Jeremiah telling us? There's a day coming, he says, and this was the day he was talking about. Is this beautiful? Well, I love it. I'm encouraged by it. The last, one, the last element of relational dynamic is the terms for the relation, reconciliation. There's a term for it. You know, we've talked about the conditions or the ingredients that make it possible. How can we make our relationships work? That's the question I want to answer. We can only experience true reconciliation with God, with our spouse, and others when there's a genuine change of heart and mind that leads to a change of behavior. If that's all you get from this sermon... That's the heart of it. We have to change if relationships are going to change. This usually only comes from pain. Usually we have to get to the place where we recognize that we're broken and we're wrong and we're a little disillusioned with ourselves. And we recognize we need a little help. When we get to that place, we're on good ground. I know it feels painful. I know you feel like your life's falling apart, but that's okay. It, it gets you to that place where that's where real change can now begin to transpire. And here we see God's willingness for reconciliation. Jeremiah says, I myself said, how gladly would I treat you like my children and give you a pleasant land, the most beautiful inheritance of any nation. I thought you could call me father and not turn away from following me. But like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so Israel, you've been unfaithful to me, declares the Lord. A cry is heard on the barren heights, the weeping and pleading of the people of Israel, because they have perverted their ways and have forgotten the Lord their God. Return, faithless people. I will cure you of your backsliding. Yes, we will come to you, for you are the Lord our God. So... um, Surely the idolatrous commotion on the hills and mountains are a deception. Surely in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. What's he saying to them? He says, listen, guys, when you and I realize that the things we're pursuing are actually destroying us and they're empty and they're not going to fulfill our lives, that's when you'll finally decide, I think I'm going to need to pursue God. And that's when the real change begins to happen in a person's life. We've got to get there. You know, when, you're, when you get desperate, it's amazing what starts happening in your life. Notice what he says here. And I wrote this one sentence. I just said, restoration and reconciliation only comes through genuine repentance or change. That's the only way. And here's the, here's the verses that support that. If you, Israel, will t- return, then return to me, declares the Lord. If you put your detestable idols out of my sight and no longer go astray, and if in a truthful, just, and righteous way you swear, surely as the Lord lives, then the nations will invoke blessings by him and in him they will boast. In other words, God will restore you, revitalize you. He will 
show favor to you. He will bless you. And it goes on. This is what the Lord says to the people of Judah and to Jerusalem. Break up your unplowed ground and do not sow among thorns. Can I just ask a question? If you're a farmer this year and you had a field and you planted wheat in it, and next year you want to plant barley in it, what are you going to have to do after you've harvested the wheat? You're going to have to break up the ground so that new seed could go into that. And this is why repentance is so important. So many people today are walking along going, there's nothing wrong with my soil. And I'm going, yeah, but you've been sowing into all the wrong seeds. You had a harvest of sin in your life. What do you expect? You think you're just going to come along now and, and change on the drop of a hat? No, you're going to have to break up the fallow ground. It's a beautiful picture. It's actually a call for us to do something about the soil of our heart. Notice the next verse. He says, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Circumcise your hearts. In other words, that little cutting, a physical operation? No, this is a spiritual operation. Something's going to happen in our hearts. You people of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, or my wrath will flare up and burn like fire because of the evil you've done, burn with no one to quench it. We have to turn away from other loves and turn to God. God is a jealous God. He wants us to love him completely and exclusively. Once we do that, it's amazing what starts happening in our lives. Now, Andrew Dearborn concludes with this beautiful thing that happens. Adultery in theological terms is a crime against grace. It is an infidelity against the God who in Christ has called us into an intimate fellowship and who has informed a church as the holy bride of Christ. Judgment is the inevitable consequence of failure to turn to the Lord in faith and obedience. Human beings cannot have it both ways. Either one is on intimate terms with God through Jesus Christ or one has other gods, other things that capture one's commitments and ultimate allegiance. So what's the step? Turn to God. Break up your fallow ground. Let God do a new work in your heart. And notice how Jeremiah points out the things that God said he'll do. I wrote them down. I will. God says, I will treat you like my children. How many go, I'd like to be treated as God's child? That's the place I want to live. I want to be treated as a child of God. Number two, he says, I'll give you the pleasant land. That's an Old Testament promise. Here's the New Testament equivalent. I will bless you with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. That's what I'm going to do for you. Number three, I will cure you of your backsliding. How many go, you know what, pastor? I'm up, I'm down, I'm up, I'm down, I'm struggling. God says, if you give your full self to me, I'll cure you. I will change your heart. I will give you a new heart. I will put a new nature inside of you. I go, this is amazing what God wants to do in our lives. You know, I'm going to close with this verse of scripture. You know, the law is right. The law shows us where we're wrong. You know, the law has one problem. And Paul says this in the book of Romans. He said, for what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, by sin, by our own sinful nature. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful nature to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. In other words, that we can do the right thing. Who do not live according to our sinful nature, but according to the power of God's spirit living inside of us. Let's stand as we close I want to just encourage us, you know, right now, God wants to do a powerful work in my life and in your life. I believe God wants us to break up fallow ground. I believe God wants us to turn our back on the things that are keeping us from making God the the exclusive love of our life. See, if you love God, above everything else in life, I'm going to make a promise to you, you'll love your spouse more. If you love God above everything else in your life, you will love your family more. You will love other people more. You will love the right things more. And you will have the power to do it. Isn't that amazing? But if you and I turn our backs on God, I'll tell you something. You may, you may say, well, yeah, but I'm, I'm putting my wife ahead of God. You'll love your wife less. You'll love your family less. You'll love everything less. Because what will happen is sin will dominate your soul and will overtake you. That's what happens. It's just that simple. 
I, I, it's a no-brainer for me. Just give your full self to God. Just surrender fully to him and say, okay, you know what? I'm, I'm interested in, number one, being reconciled to God. That's the most important relationship. You get that one right, now you're moving in the right direction. And then I think you can deal with the other broken relationships. As much as lies within you, live at peace with all people. Sometimes people, you know, they choose to walk away from you. But on our side, we're not walking away from them. You see the difference? I don't think God walked away from Israel. Israel had walked away from God. He just gave them the bill of divorce. He said, you guys are already there. Here's the bill that says you're no longer mine. But they had chosen that themselves. It wasn't God that chose that. They chose it. That's what we need to understand. And so God is calling us to himself. And just with every head bowed right now, maybe some of you here today say, you know, Pastor, the Spirit of God is speaking to my heart. Man, we had such a powerful time of prayer this morning. And I, I was praying. I said, Lord, help us to be reconciled with you. And maybe you're here today and you say, yeah, I'm a Christian. But you know what I notice? God is not preeminent in my life. He's not the most important love of my life. There's a lot of things that are distracting me right now. But God's Spirit is speaking to me right now. He says, I want you 100%. Maybe that's you today. Just with an uplifted hand, say, you know what? I want to be reconciled to God. Just raise your hand. You can be a believer. This is fine. Raise your hand. Just say, yep, that's me. Spirit of God is talking to you. It's good. Number two, how many here say, you know what? You can put your hands down. Number two, you know what? I have to say that there are things going on in my marriage. I need to be reconciled with my spouse. That's me this morning. Just raise your hand. I want to pray with you. I want to pray with you. Okay, yeah, it's good. And to believe God. Okay, you can put your hands down. How many here today say, you know what, there's other people in my life and it's not going good, Pastor. And I need to be reconciled with those people. And that's me today. Raise your hand. I want to pray with you right now. You've done what you can do maybe and it's not going good. But you know what? Let's, let's believe God for the spirit of reconciliation. And so, Father, I pray today, number one, that as we yield ourselves to you anew and afresh, give us, give us a heart that turns to you. Help us to begin to look in your marvelous face. May your grace flow into our lives. May you change the broken places of our soul, Lord. May you change the criticism and the anger and the frustration, all of the things that go on in the human heart. Lord, give us a heart after your heart, I pray today. I pray, Father, that you would help us in our marriages, Lord, that you would bring about reconciliation. May there be true repentance. May we recognize that we have not loved the person that we made a covenant vow to the way we ought to have. Lord, right now, I ask you to forgive us our sins. I ask you, Father, to give us a heart towards our spouse, Lord, that we would love them and cherish them and value them that we would show deference to them, that we, would, uh, that we would put them above every other relationship we have. And I pray for these other relationships. Lord, help us not to be fair-weather friends, Lord. Help us to be loyal and committed. Help us to love people even if we don't agree with them. Help us to love them with all of our hearts. Help us to reflect your great love. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.